Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. My name is Jacob Springer, and I have the gift of serving as one of the community group leaders here at Downtown Hope and coordinating the community groups. Uh, my full-time job is I teach electrical engineering here at the Naval Academy on the yard. Uh, so hopefully I will make this more interesting than my normal circuits class. Uh, I enjoy this stuff more than circuits, so uh, hopefully you will too. Our passage today is in Acts 9, 1 through 9. The uh, series that we're in all spring up to until Easter is uh, the outpouring. And so this week we're focusing on the outpouring of mercy as you, you've kind of heard. So let's read Acts 9, 1 through 9. I'll read it, and uh, we'll get into it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and this wonderful story of Paul, Saul, who is traveling and sees light from heaven, and it's you speaking to him. I pray that we would see your words today as impacting our lives and that we would recognize your mercy for us in, uh, in what we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all, this is an amazing story, and we all love a great story. Once upon a time, the princess with an evil stepmother who wanted to be the fairest in the land, or the young boy on Tatooine who wants to go defeat the evil empire. We put our holidays around the great stories, like the signing of Declaration of Independence and fighting against the tyrant King George. And in the Bible, God commands his people to tell these stories of the Bible again. There's many Psalms recounting what happened in the Old Testament. Uh, Even last week, whenever we saw Stephen, he's speaking and he's retelling the story of the Exodus and the deliverance of out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so God wants his people to remember and retell these stories. We do this amongst our families. My kids love around the dinner table, Dad, tell us a story. Especially to hear, Dad, tell us a family story. Tell us of when you and Mom met. Whenever I was a kid, my favorite one asked my dad, we'd ask him, Dad, tell us a story. Tell us the one when you were a church greeter. We knew the story, but we wanted to hear it again. And so the story goes, Dad, tell us the story of when you were a church greeter. He was a young 22, 23-year-old man down in Texas greeting people as they came into church. 
And a couple comes up, and dad, being the nice young man, says, oh, congratulations, when the, is the baby due? And the woman starts crying. I had the baby three months ago. I just can't seem to get the... F-. So my dad, it gets better than that. Um, he's being the nice, helpful young man that he is, and he says, well, how have you been watching salt in your diet? I hear that uh, too much sodium can keep the weight on. So my mom, I think in the foyer, like escaped down a hall somewhere. And uh, so, but we know that story in my family. We would ask to hear it again. It's good for us to hear these stories. It's refreshing and retelling and remembering and reminding is what God wants us to do with his word as well. So if you have been in the church for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, you've likely heard this story. Uh, It's going to come up again in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. Paul's going to give it again. Uh, He recounts it elsewhere in his letters. And if you haven't heard it before, and this is your first time, welcome, uh, you're going to hear it again. Like we, this is a familiar story. And Paul and Peter, both when they write their letters, say that they're writing the letters to remind us of things. As Jed led us in worship with great is thy faithfulness, Lamentations 3, 21 through 22 says, this I call to mind, or this I remember, this I remind myself of, this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So when we create negative messages for ourselves, the thing is impossible. I can't do this. Or whenever we're striving, we're believing in our own abilities. Or maybe we're feeling like I can't do it on my own strength. We must call to mind something greater that God is the God of the impossible, that his mercies are new every morning. Pastor John Piper says it this way. He says, reasoning your way out of an impossible situation is not as effective as reminding your way out of it. Remind yourself that God does impossible things. And that's what we're going to see here in this story of Saul on the road to Damascus today. We remind and remember these stories for three reasons at least. One is that we're refreshed in hearing a familiar story like my family stories around the table. Something else is that we receive something new. Oh, I've never seen that before. I've never observed that. That's something new that we learn. And the other one, especially with these biblical stories, is that we revel and rejoice in the Lord. And today we're going to rejoice in his mercies. So the mercy for this character, Saul, often called Paul. So a lot of times we hear his name, he'll refer to himself as Paul. It's not like Jacob getting his name changed to Israel. Uh, It is that his Jewish name is Saul, and his Greek or Roman name is Paul. So when he's sharing the gospel and and he's throughout the Mediterranean, usually he's speaking Greek. That's why he calls himself Paul. Here in this Jewish context, he's uh, leaving Jerusalem and going to Damascus. And so that's why we're referring to him as Saul. But they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. And so what we know about him is that he is first a very, very devout Jew. He describes this further in Acts 22, Acts 26, Philippians 3, and Galatians 1. And he uses phrases like extremely zealous or a Hebrew of Hebrews. We know that he's highly educated. He says he's advancing well beyond his years. And so he's extremely zealous for what he thinks is service to God. But what he learns and what we're going to see is that this was in his flesh. It was according to his own works. As we sang, it's he's working his fingers down to the bone, trying so hard to please God. But these are his earthly efforts. 
He's there. The first time we meet this character, Saul, is at the end of Acts 7, if you turn your Bible back one page. And uh, Stephen is being stoned by these leaders in the synagogue. And in verse 7, uh, 758, it says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8, 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church. In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then we go to Acts 9, 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, And so this is in his own flesh that he is seeking to please God. But what he's actually doing is fulfilling what Jesus prophesied to his disciples in John 16. He's telling his disciples around the the Lord's Supper, he said, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And that's what Paul thinks he is doing is offering service to God. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He is working and working, trying to serve God. But this service is not unto the Lord. It's more like the serving that we see in Isaiah, where God says that their offering is a stench in his nostrils, or Paul's righteousness is as filthy rags. And he is not pleasing God with this. But then God acts, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So this suddenly is the same word whenever the uh, shepherds are out in the fields and the angel of the Lord, and suddenly it's out of nowhere. It's completely unexpected what is happening in Paul's life. I ask, what role does Paul play in making this light shine? This salvation that is coming to him is completely due to God and has nothing to do with Paul's attempts at righteousness. Then the voice speaks from heaven, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This repeating of his name is a pleading or an imploring. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is personal. He's going after the church, but this is Jesus saying, when you're persecuting these followers, you are persecuting me. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then if you're reading in the New King James or later in the Acts 26, uh, when they give a little bit more detail of this conversation, Jesus uses the phrase, he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm like, well, what's a goad? But whenever an ox would be pulling a cart and you could prod it or prick it or goad it along, then it would kick against it. But all it does is hurt the ox. It's still going to need to move forward. And so that's what Jesus is telling him. It is not good for you to be fighting against the maker of heaven and earth. So what is Saul's response when he says, uh, Jesus tells me, go to the city, is that Saul believes and he obeys and he goes. So this is a great mercy for Saul to be rescued out of this place of persecuting God's people. But this story of Paul isn't just a story of mercy for him. It's also a story of mercy for the church. The book of Acts really is not just about uh, 
the apostles. It says Acts of the Apostles, but there's different apostles accounting throughout. This past week we read about Philip. There's a lot happening with Peter. And then there's going to be a lot happening with Paul here. But the main character of Acts really is the church. And if this persecution sounds terrible, where he's going from house to house and arresting them and dragging them out, and it sounds like how we imagine Nazi Germany, where they're busting down doors, it sounds terrible because that's how terrible it is. And so these men and women are being ravaged. And actually, it's even the fact that they, they bring up the women twice. That's unusual. Normally, you would just arrest a head of a household. Even in the persecuted church today, that's very common for the head of the household to be arrested. But Paul is going uh, from house to house, arresting the men and the women. The gospel had been spreading from house to house, but now he's persecuting. The word persecuting means to chase. He's chasing after them, following house after house. He's not just waiting until they come to the synagogue and preach Jesus to them. He's going from house to house, persecuting and chasing them, and it's ravaging. He's seeking to destroy the church. So the church is likely praying for relief from this persecution. The most like the easy definition of mercy is just relief from something bad. They're praying for relief or deliverance. But we also know in Acts 5 that they're praying for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread. And so it's completely unexpected. If you had not heard this story before and you're reading through Acts, that this character Saul, who's ravaging the church, is going to become the great evangelist Paul. It's completely not known to them and completely unexpected. Let's read starting in verse 10. And Ananias is one of the people in the church, and he's kind of representing for us the church's response. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he, this is Paul, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he's going from house to house, seeking to lay hands and drag out the disciples. But now Ananias comes and lays hands on Saul. 
Saul goes from being Peter, chasing the people, and throughout the rest of Acts, and as we're going to see in the New Testament, he's now the persecuted one. He was causing suffering for the disciples, but by this great mercy, he's now suffering for the name of Christ, and he's teaching us how to suffer. So whenever Paul later writes, and he says that we have an eternal weight of glory, with these light momentary afflictions and we can receive encouragement from the word about how to suffer well and rejoice in Christ through our suffering, it's because Paul is learning to suffer for the name of Christ. So this is a blessing for the church. He's going from stopping and seeking to destroy the church and stop the name of Jesus to proclaiming the name of Jesus and proving that he is the Christ. The church's mourning has been turned into dancing because of this great mercy in Paul's life. And something else is that he goes from just being focused on his Jewish Hebrew of Hebrews, and he is the chosen instrument to go take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The second half of Acts, starting in chapter 13, is really recounting his great journeys across the Mediterranean to the Gentiles that eventually becomes us. Over half the remaining books of the Bible are written by Paul. If we pick up after Acts, it's a lot of letters. A lot of them are letters from Paul to the churches that he throughout the Mediterranean. And most of us, almost all of us, could trace our spiritual lineage back to Paul. If you've ever done like a read through the Bible or you get in those areas of the Bible, it's like, and Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat, and you have this lineage that you can trace. If you traced your own spiritual lineage, who led me to Christ, nearly all of us would trace our lineage in the West back up through Paul as he's planting these churches throughout the Gentiles. So this story is a mercy for Paul. It's a mercy for the church then, and it's a mercy for us now as well, because this isn't just about Paul or Ananias. Paul specifically says in 1 Timothy 1, He's describing how he was a persecutor of the church. And he says, here's about his story. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So he is the foremost of sinners so that we can see that our sins can be forgiven. Our sin, your sin, my sin is so great compared to the righteousness and the holiness and the perfect love of God. But God saves this foremost of sinners to show that he can forgive you, he can forgive me, and he can forgive us. And he does this by his own mercy and his grace. And it's not from our efforts at serving. Jesus says that he came into this world not to be served. Jesus didn't come to be served. Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So again, I said it earlier, I'll ask the question, is that what role does Paul play in making the light suddenly shine? Or for us, what role does a dead person play in bringing themselves back to life? What role does a dead person play in bringing themselves back to life? Ephesians describes that we were dead in our sin, but God makes us alive. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins 
into verse 3, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship because we are saved by his mercy and grace. I said earlier, the mercy is the receiving of compassion and the relief from something bad. And the something bad in the biblical mercy is that it is relief from the sin and the wrath in the death and the suffering that comes that we deserve. But it's God's forgiveness and his withholding of punishment is the mercy that we sing his praises. So mercy is the relief from something bad and the grace here is the receiving of something good that is also not deserved. So the mercy is not getting the bad, the grace is getting the good and neither of those are deserved. Biblical scholars will describe this as two sides of the same coin. And so this grace that we receive is undeserved blessings upon blessings. It is the mercy and the grace that we don't deserve. And it's not us, it's God. It's not your works or your accomplishments. It's not your status, your promotion, your job title, your income level, the size of your house. And it's not your own righteousness. It's not your personal purity. It's not even your zealousness. It is entirely God's grace and mercy that saves us. Paul thinks he is being zealous, but it is God who shines the light upon him. And this is entirely sufficient. It's not that Jesus, in his death on the cross, made a down payment on your salvation, and now it's up to you to make the monthly payments for the remainder of the debt. You're not contributing to your own salvation. Philip Melanchthon, the uh, reformer who was kind of like he was the writer while Martin Luther was the speaker, Philip Melanchthon says the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Titus 3.5, Paul, another letter from Paul, he says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So we were saved and we're still being saved by his mercy. In fact, that's the entire point of Paul's letter to the Galatians is that it is not our works. It is his mercy that saves us. And so in conclusion, we don't actually just get the mercy and the grace. As, and then we, we do get it, but that's not where it ends. It's that we also give mercy and grace. If we look at this story in Acts 9, Paul is receiving mercy. But we also learn from Ananias about how to give mercy. How does he describe Paul? He says, I've heard of this man. I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And yet, Ananias goes and lays hands and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me. And so what happens to Paul if Ananias doesn't go? If Ananias doesn't go show mercy to Paul, the story ends there. 
And so that's what, for us, a question, a takeaway, is that how do we go to the undeserving and go give mercy? Reflect, who in your life should you be merciful toward? Or where can you go show mercy? Where can you go to someone and be forgiving when they don't deserve it? Or where can you go to relieve someone out of a bad situation from their suffering? The reason we are given mercy is so that we can go give mercy. This is a theme throughout Jesus' teachings and the epistles. We love because he first loved us. Forgive one another, just as in Christ, God has for you. Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 the parable of the unmerciful servant, where there's a servant with a master who receives billions of dollars of forgiveness of debt. Billions of dollars, but then turns to his fellow servant and won't forgive 10,000. Billions versus 10,000. And Jesus concludes with what the master says. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This parable that Jesus tells us is directly in response when the person asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus' answer, I tell you not seven, but 70 times seven. And if you're married, then I'm sure you can relate with me at how someone could possibly need to be forgiven 490 times. My wife, Jenna, has had to show so much mercy to me and choose not to demand repayment from my sin when I have sinned against her time after time. Since she's perfect, I never have to show any mercy to her. I'm kidding. She sins all the time. Um, she said I could say that. But I know for me that this is the marriage lesson and in forgiveness and not demanding repayment, but choosing to show mercy when I have been offended or um, the mercy when I have been offensive to her. That has been my greatest growing point. I didn't know about my problems in mar until I was married. I knew generally I could become angry, but it's in marriage that I realized I have anger that I need to be forgiven of. I can lust that I need to be forgiven of. I can be prideful and I need to be forgiven of that. And so for all of us, we need this mercy and then people are offending us and we need to be merciful to them because we have been forgiven the billions when they're only offending us to a much smaller amount. So you can ask, whether you're married or not, there's always someone who is in need of your mercy and your grace. You can think, who is your Paul if you're Ananias? Who is doing this evil against you? Who is coming after you? Persecuting means to chase. Who is coming after you? Or who's coming at you, as we commonly say? Who's coming at you? Or who in your life is raising your blood pressure or causing you to tense up who in your life do you not want to forgive? Because I promise you that however much they've offended you, it is much, so much less than how much God has forgiven you in Christ. So the reason that we receive mercy is to give mercy. So circling back to why we tell good stories like this over and over, we are refreshed in hearing a familiar story. This is good to see the great mercy in Paul's life as he's going on the road to Damascus. Another is to receive something new, something that we haven't seen before in this story that we can take away. We can revel and rejoice in the goodness and the mercy of the Lord when we realize how greatly we've been forgiven. 
And then finally, we reproduce this mercy. And we forgive, just as in Christ God has forgiven us. We reproduce this mercy, and we reproduce new disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, who pays the penalty of our sins. And we thank you for this word of Paul receiving as you're shining your light upon him and bringing salvation to him that he reproduces and he shares the good news of Jesus throughout Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout the Mediterranean. And that so many believers come to faith because of the great work that you do through your chosen instrument, Paul. And that he teaches us how to suffer for your name. I pray that as we receive mercy, from here we would go and be merciful and go and do likewise. And that we do this because we are wholly dependent on Jesus for his death and his resurrection and that he's now ascended and sitting at your right hand. We pray this in his name. Amen.